If you have your Bibles, please open to uh, Romans chapter 9. This morning we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 13. I'm going to read up to 18 just to kind of bring everything together just a little bit. As you remember, we uh, kind of started our uh, review of the book of Romans by uh, looking at Romans chapter 8, dividing it into uh, two weeks worth of study, uh, really with the intent of kind of bringing us back up to speed before we really dive into uh, Romans chapter 9 and um, uh, God's sovereign election. We have to understand uh, the context before with regard to salvation, how we are saved by grace alone through faith alone uh, in order to understand uh, God's eternal decree. So again, Romans chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through uh, 18. Here now, the words of the one and only living and true God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is God's word. Paul is dealing with the issue of uh, predestination throughout this passage. But he doesn't necessarily dive right into it uh, right off the bat. And even so, it's rare for a song, if you listen to music, uh, to begin or start right at the chorus, right at the, the main climax of the song, A wonderfully composed song, a composition, uh, begins with some type of prelude, an introduction, something to uh, warm your ears up for the excitement of what is about to be played for you. Many of you who listen to classical music especially know what this sounds like. It begins soft, it begins melodic, it begins uh, peaceful. And then scattered throughout even uh, any major musical piece are a lot of changes or uh, disruptions in the main tune, but it always comes back and brings you back into the main theme. It's only until you arrive at the end of a great composition, when it reaches its fullness, that you really feel uh, the weight of the music that you're listening to. And so it is with Paul here in Romans chapter 9. He gives us a prelude to predestination, introduction, a little taste of what he is going to argue for the next couple of chapters. And all up until this point, uh, we have seen some absolute marvelous truths about uh, God's word on display for us in Romans. Uh, That we are no longer dead in our sins, in our trespasses, if we're in Christ. Uh, The long list of depravity that is listed in Romans 1, we are no longer bound to as Christians. We are flee, we are uh, no longer slaves to the flesh, but we are slaves to Christ, which is more freeing than the flesh. And not only that, but we are united with Christ. We are adopted into God's family. We have all the rights to sonship that Christ Jesus has, that he himself has earned on our behalf. And oh, by the way, he gave us as well his Holy Spirit who indwells in us, who helps us and aids us as we pray. And we're also reminded that there is nothing on earth that could possibly separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're told uh, throughout the passage uh, that Paul is dealing with uh, this Jewish conception, this Jewish idea of how God saves people. The same way that he dealt with the church in Galatia, he's kind of dealing with now that The Jews, many of them believe, those who were Israelites of the flesh, could somehow earn God's favor by observance to God's law, 
by being circumcised, that that was membership into the club. Yet we're told explicitly that those who live according to the flesh are not to be justified by works. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So obedience to the law doesn't make you right with God. Neither does circumcision. It's not a means by which one is saved. It is a sign. It is a seal. Romans 4.11 He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. So we see first in this passage the Israelites' denial of justification by faith. Even though they were given all the promises and blessings of God, we see first in this passage a heart for Israel's tragic tale in verses 1 through 5. A heart for Israel's tragic tale. Again, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, you can really feel the weightiness of what Paul has to say in these forthcoming verses. He, he assures us that in Christ, his conscience, in the Holy Spirit, he has a great pastoral care and regard for his brothers, for his fellow Jewish brothers. And is this not also the care and concern we ourselves ought to have for those who are outside of the bounds of the church? Do we feel this unceasing anguish and sorrow for those who are perishing under the law, for those who have not found freedom in Christ Jesus, the same freedom that you have in him? And this opening lament that Paul has, this, this opening sorrow really kind of sets the entire framework for chapters 9 all the way through 11. It fits a lot like a psalm of lament. You have this great lament for the people, this lament, but then you have this great doxology at the end, this praise to God, which is exactly what Paul proclaims at the end of Romans 11. And we also see Paul appealing to God's people in the very same way that Moses did in appealing for God's people. If you remember following the golden calf incident, as Moses is receiving God's law, the people go back and resort to idolatry by burning all their gold and forming and shaping for themselves a golden calf. 
And what's Moses' response? Exodus 32, verses 30 through 2. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses, this great prophet, Paul, this great apostle, extend a genuine desire and care for their brothers at the expense of their own care. Similarly, Paul tells us that he would rather be accursed, he would rather be set apart from the people of God to those that uh, denied the very Savior, the very Messiah that they had longed for all throughout the Old Testament. This great unceasing anguish that he has. Paul uses a strong word, accursed, It's the very same reference that he uses when he writes to the church of Galatia. If you remember, the false teachers, the Judaizers, were proclaiming works, righteousness, salvation. You had to do X, Y, and Z in order to be saved. And Paul says, of them, if even we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel that's contrary to the one that we have preached... Let him be accursed. Let him be set off, set apart from the people of God. Paul himself has such grief and anguish for his people that he wishes the same fate of the false teachers that he rebuked in Galatians. And the Jewish audience would have been extremely familiar with Paul using this word, the weight of it. This strong word that he uses was employed all throughout the Old Testament. Anything that was devoted to complete destruction is used here by Paul. It has a similarity with the Old Testament. And so the people, the Jewish people, would have been well aware of the immensity of what Paul is saying here. He doesn't just say, my brothers, but he says, my kinsmen, my fellow countrymen, those who are according to the flesh. There were ties that bound Paul still to his own nation. As he says, he was a Jew of all Jews, a Benjaminite of all Benjaminites. He knew the law firsthand, and he did not want to see his people cut off from the Savior that they longed and hoped and wished for. And even still, Paul reminds them that they are not without great significance when it comes to our redemption, the rewards that we reap. He says, to them belongs the adoption. Exodus 4, 22-23, the Lord says, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I will say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Not only did they belong adoption, but they also beheld the glory of the Lord in both the tabernacle and in the temple. 
Not only that, but they received the promises of the covenant through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, King David himself. Yet what do they do? The very Messiah that they were longing and hoping for, they reject. And Paul's anguish cannot be expressed in any other terms than a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in his own heart. And Paul is really expressing a great reality in the minds of those who hear it, that this truth cannot be separated from the reaction uh, that we receive from it. The very fact is that this is true. This is God's word. And whether or not we ourselves conclude that we are rejecting God's Messiah, his son, does not nullify God's word as that which is true. And what's interesting too, what really demonstrates Paul's genuine care for his people, it wasn't just that he was a Jew, that he was an Israelite, uh, that he was trained in the greatest uh, theological seminary that you could possibly be trained in at the time. But by human standards, in our own estimation, Paul would have had every right in the world to detest his own kinsmen. Paul was absolutely hated by his own, if you remember. He lays this out in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 25. Listen to how he endured hostility from his own people. Again, his kinsmen, his brothers, those whom he himself wished he could be set apart, cut off from God for, if they would be saved. He says, far more imprisonments he has dealt with, with countless beatings and often near death. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, his brothers, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. Yet what is Paul's reaction here? It is genuine, Christ-like love for one's enemies. And at the same time, he's expressing this great truth at the expense of his own safety and security. You would think he would have just given up after receiving all the persecution he did. No, the truth he knew cut past all of that. And we're reminded that one is not a Jew by mere nationality, but one is part of the people of God by the circumcision of their own heart. So as we see, as we look at verses 1 through 5, we see how a child of God should react to those who are separated from God, for those of our own brothers, our own family members, those colleagues that we work with who are separated from Christ, the unceasing anguish we have in our own hearts for them. And the knowledge that secondly, the word of God does not fail in verses 6 through 9. Paul says quite clearly, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, 
shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. So Israel's rejection of Christ as the Messiah, as the Christ, would make us think to ourselves, well, perhaps God's word throughout the entire Old Testament has completely failed. None of that is true, then, if none of them are grasping on to this truth. If all Israel, without exception, is not true Israel, then perhaps the promises in Genesis 17, 7 through 8, have failed. Even Scripture itself says in that passage, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's as if Paul is saying, if, if it's true that God's promises have not failed and his covenants have not failed, then thus his word as well has not failed. God's word stays true. And so how does Paul remind us of this? Well, he says quite clearly that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Just because you aren't born from Abraham the patriarch doesn't mean you are not part of God's people. And how could it be possible that not all Israel belongs to Israel? Those who were Jewish contemporaries of Paul, who were Jews around the time Paul was ministering, assumed that their physical descent, that who their father was, their genetics, their DNA, was the grounds for their acceptability before God. Essentially, they would say, since I am a Jew, since I was born as God's people, I am part of Abraham, and since I am part of Abraham, then I share in his righteousness. This is the exact same tactic that Jesus dealt with in talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. They answered to Jesus, Abraham is our father, them trying to justify themselves. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, if you were true Israel, parentheses, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Like most of Jesus' ministry, he was getting at the heart of the matter. It wasn't mere genealogy or DNA or checking your 23 and me and going back and saying, yep, at one point I was part of Benjamin or I was part of Levi. Therefore, I am saved, I am justified, I am made right in God's sight. No. And just as Jesus was getting to the heart of the matter, so does Paul get to the heart of the matter. And this is exactly his point in Romans 2, 28 through 29. This is, this is nothing new to us as we read through Romans. Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But what? What is it then, Paul? A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, 
but from God. To be a recipient of God's grace, one is not reliant upon their genealogical descent. Just because Abraham is your father does not mean you are righteous by descent. You are declared righteous only because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 3.7. He says, Know then that it is those of faith. Let me read that again. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And to emphasize his argument, uh, Paul quotes Genesis 21, verse 12, and Romans 9, 7. He says, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's important to remember that Paul's argument up until now has been a constant reminder that the means by which we are saved, the instrument that God uses, is faith. We are saved by faith alone. The faith Abraham had in God's promise to give him descendants was a promise received by faith. Genesis 15, 6, And he believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord, had faith, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham's son, Isaac, did not come merely through natural means. If you remember, Sarah was barren. She was unable to have a child. Yet God promised and delivered upon his promise by providing Abraham a son. The presence or absence of faith in Christ defines for us who belongs to true Israel. God has not forgotten his covenant promises to his people. Right? Faith, faith, not DNA, defines and signifies who is truly part of Israel. We cannot emphasize this point enough as we get through the rest of Romans. The blessings of salvation extend to those who are right with God through genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And this is why we put a distinction even now between the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church, that which you see with your eyes, you turn to your right and left in the pews, are those who make a profession in the Lord Jesus Christ, both them and their children. But the invisible church are those who are truly God's people. Like Israel, those who are circumcised by the heart, who receive it by faith. Like Israel, not all those, unfortunately, who sit in our pews, who attend church, are part of true Israel. The visible church includes many who belong to Ishmael, not the child of promise, but the child according to the flesh, according to works. God hasn't turned his back on the nation of Israel. He has rather simply clarified to us what it means to be a child of Abraham. And so it would be important for us then to take a moment of self-examination to see whether we are truly 
sons of the living God. Let us not think for a moment that church attendance or adherence to the Westminster Standards or your baptism or how often you partake of the Lord's Supper be the means by which you are saved. How are you saved? By faith alone in Jesus Christ. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, you will indeed be saved. Our shorter catechism says, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for our salvation. We do not rest on how we were born, if we were born into the church, if we were born out of the church, if we were born into a certain ethnicity. It is only because of what Christ has done on our behalf. This is what we looked at over the last two weeks in just Romans 8 alone. But at the same time, we need to heed Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says, examine yourselves. I don't examine. You examine yourself to see whether or not you are of the faith. Do you not realize about this, that Christ Jesus is in you unless you indeed fail to meet the test? And so Paul finally argues in verse 8 that the means by which the children of the promise are counted as offspring, the very promise to Abraham that he would have descendants, that he would have a seed, that he would have offspring, that he would have children as numerous as the stars above, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, that promise is to those who are united with Christ and receive it by faith. And so third, we come to our final point. God's elective love will prevail. Verses 10 through 13. Paul writes, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Uh, just like music, most <clears throat> good books that you read begin with some form of an introduction or a preface, something that uh, gives you a little bit of a taste of what you're about to read in the coming chapters or in the coming series of books. Uh, one favorite many of you uh, have is The Lord of the Rings. And the preface to this entire enormous work is a small little chapter entitled Concerning Hobbits. Now why is that important? At the time, you, you don't even understand what this people group is, nor do you understand until you read the book that this very people group ends up becoming the, the major heroes of the story, right? You're given a, a small little taste, a small little foretaste, an introduction of what's about to unfold over the course of several hundreds of pages. And so God, too, gives us a little foretaste of what is about to unfold, that his 
predestination, his choosing, his foreloving before the foundations of the world comes to a particular people. Where previously Paul had appealed to Abraham, now his appeal, according to the word of God, is from the child of the promise himself, Isaac. As a way of demonstrating God's love, God's election in choosing some and passing over others, Paul explains that God didn't even consider Jacob and Esau's for, uh, future actions and his own decision to choose them. Paul says himself, the children had not even been born, nor have they done any good or evil. Right? God didn't look down the corridors of time and say, Jacob is going to be uh, the one who obeys me. Esau is going to be the one who disobeys me. No, before they had even done anything, while they're still in the womb, God chose one to be the inheritor of the promise and passed over another. Even more powerful is that both Jacob and Esau were born of the same father. Right? If it was genealogy-driven, then they both were children of Abraham. And to them, both should have been the promises, the covenants, the fulfillments, according to God's word. Yet what happens? Esau himself throws it all away. Throws away his privileges. Gives away his birthright. Jacob, even though he's a great deceiver, and conniver, by faith, receives the promises of God. And again, if you were at any point yet confused about God's electing love that he has, if you still think it's ethnicity or works righteousness, as one commentator says, our salvation finds its genesis, its beginning in God's love in his sovereign choice. That's why Paul says in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, right? Emphasis, not because of works, but because of him, God, who calls. Paul is reiterating the same point over and over and over again. And then finally, Paul appeals to Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, and saying, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Again, both of these men were sinful men. They were both born in Adam, just like you and I are born in Adam. They were both born under the curse, under the promise of death for their sins. Yet Jacob obtained newness of life, found in the Lord. Esau himself remained in his sinful estate and acted according to his own nature. Evidenced in both is still God's love for one which is free, it's sovereign, it's unconditional, and at the same time God's hate for the other, a holy and pure, righteous indignation for sin. And our chief purpose is to glorify and magnify God's name. How does he do this? He does it 
through the salvation of his own. He does it through saving his own sheep, his own people, his own chosen race. Again, even though Jacob and Esau were physical descendants of Abraham, God chose one over the other. How then ought we to react then to coming to this? Anytime we have talked about election and predestination amongst uh, many seminary students, nearly 100% of the time, uh, with, without fail, somebody says they didn't grasp this, they didn't really hold to this or cling to it until they read either Chosen by God from R.C. Sproul or Holiness of God. Until we understand, as we read this morning, that God is holy, 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 will we not understand God's election in the text, God's predestination? If we remember, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Condemnation comes to all who are dead in Adam. None of us, at any point in our life, could earn salvation, yet God freely bestows it, gives it to his people that his purposes may stand. But at the same time, as we even dig deeper into what this means, uh, we need to take heed to what our confession says in chapter 3, verse 8, that we take this high mystery of predestination which is in God's word quite clearly proclaimed, but it's to be handled with prudence, with care, and concern for our brothers and sisters. We don't brag about it. We don't lift it above other things. But we're reminded that we come with humility to the text. And as we will conclude in this major section, regardless of our thoughts on it, we can proclaim like Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of our God? Who can be his counselor? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To God be the glory forever. And with that, let us go to him in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come to your text, often in different stages of life. And Lord, regardless of our thoughts on the matter, we are comforted, Lord, that those whom you predestined, you called, those whom you called, you justified, and those whom you justified, you glorified. And because of that great truth, no tribulation, no persecution, no famine, no sword, no nakedness, no peril. Nothing in all the ages will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And Father, we are immensely thankful for what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. Full humility, full obedience, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he may have for himself a people, a chosen race, a flock, a sheep, a bride, a church, 
And Lord, let us forever be grateful for the great privilege that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.